And now, proper propaganda. If you're just tuning in to Civic Cypher, I'm your host, Ramses Ja. I go by the name Q Ward, Thursday through Sunday, sometimes Monday. Yes, indeed. Be sure to stick around. we got a lot more coming your way, including a conversation about guns. Um, it's, it's time. We're about overdue for a conversation about guns. For those listening to the show, you know that Q is, I wouldn't call you a fan of guns, but you're certainly, a, you understand their place in society a little bit more than I do. I'm not a big fan of guns at all. And uh, we have to tell a story because it's relevant. Um, We're also going to spend a little time talking about uh, the Floating Freedom School. That is going to be our way Black history fact. And I promise you want to stick stick around for that because it's just a neat little way that a man was able to circumvent the law and educate Black students at a time when Black people were not allowed to be educated. But first, let's discuss how to become a better ally. So this comes from NPR. A new musical inspired by a satirical Afrofuturist novel called Black No More opens off-Broadway. It was presented by the new group uh, set during the Depression. Both the book and the musical examine race in America with an outrageous plot device. An inventor comes up with a a machine that turns Black people white. In a dapper suit, Tariq Trotter, a.k.a. Black Thought of the Roots, appears center stage to set the scene. Sitting in a barbershop, uh, chair he raps this is harlem the big apples core 70 or more years before there were any apple stores i wish i could have heard him say that because i bet that sounded dope rolling off his sounded incredible yeah man off his voice so trotter wrote the lyrics and much of the music which ranges from hip-hop to r&b to jazz and folk and he plays dr junius crookman inventor of the black no more machine which will turn any black person white for 50 dollars trotter says the doctor believes this black no more device is the solution to race relations in america I think the line is to solve American race problem as we know it. But yeah, you know, I don't think a solution is ever reached. And that is the Twilight Zone-like premise of Black No More, which features a script by Academy Award winner John Ridley, a 1931 novel by George Schuyer, has a take-no-prisoners attitude toward not just white supremacists and politicians, but thinly-veiled figures from the Harlem Renaissance. goes on to say uh, of course particularly when they're black uh, making fun of black people the challenge for the creative team especially the writers was to move the story from broad satire to something with a beating heart and I think that what they've come up with is a really fascinating morality tale so become a better ally why not check out this musical uh, based on the novel black no more uh, at your earliest convenience how long is it off Broadway uh, that I don't know, but again, Google is let's free find for all out. Listeners. Let's find out and go see it. Yeah, let's go see it. It'd be better to see it than just read about it. But yeah, and I don't get to those very often. So yeah, let's we should do that. And you should see it too if you're listening to us. Um, so yeah, now let's move on. Um, the story comes from yahoo.com. Colorado police officer who fatally shot a bystander hailed a hero for stopping a gunman armed with a rifle uh, will not be charged, prosecutors said Monday. All right. The officer whose identity has not been made public had objectively reasonable grounds to believe the officer and others faced imminent danger when the officer opened fire 
June 21st in Arvada, north of Denver, killing a bystander, John Hurley, 40 years old. First Judicial District Attorney Alexis King told reporters, quote, officers saw that day a mass shooter, heard many rounds of gunfire in broad daylight in the heart of Old Town Arvada, King said. He continues, thus the officer's decision to shoot John Hurley was legally justified despite his heroic actions that day. In other words, um, there was a man who was in the middle of a mass shooting, right? And there was another man, um, this man Hurley, who saw this happening, had a gun, and engaged the mass shooter, killing him. Then the police show up and they kill Hurley. That's that's basically, I'll I'll read the rest of the story, but just so you can follow it. But they killed Hurley thinking he was the mass shooter when he had already shot the mass shooter. Go ahead, Q. The mass shooter, amongst the mass shooter's victims, Mm. Arvada police officer, Gordon Beasley. So imagine this story as Ramses just told you. Mass shooter murders police officer. Law abiding citizen who's a gun owner kills mass shooter who also murdered a police officer. Then the police kill him. I don't mean to laugh, but the irony slaps you in the face. And, and, and here's the thing. There's been this narrative, this entirely unfounded narrative. No, I can't say that. I have to be fair. There have been instances where a person was acting crazy, another person had a gun, they shot that person, and perhaps some lives were saved, right? So I will be fair. I will see that. But this narrative that that exists largely, uh, I won't say on the right, but largely with gun owners, is that the only thing that will stop a good guy with a or bad, only thing that will stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, right? Which in this case was true until the good guy with the gun got shot too. And I'm not here to pick apart that argument, but I am here to say, you know, maybe there's a gun problem. And maybe these overly simplistic solutions that people keep trying to offer, they're not realistic, right? Now, on this show, I, I don't want to say we because Q is a different man and he's got different opinions, but I, Ramses, who has been to New Zealand, who has been to you know, places, you know, Hong Kong and, you know, Q's been to all these places too, but I've been to some different places and Q's been to some different places. But I've seen places where they don't have gun violence and guns are just as legal. It's a part of their freedoms, right? And then there's places where there's no guns. It is not a part of their freedoms, but that means nobody has any guns, not the police, not the, you know, they don't have a second amendment as it, as it were. But there are places where you are allowed to have a gun And the police are allowed to have guns too, and they don't carry it with them. Like the assumption isn't like, well, what if something happens? 
You know, what, what if I need to end someone's life today? You know, the assumption is if I need a gun, it will be close by, but my day-to-day activities don't require that. So I'm not going to live in fear in that way. If I need a gun, I'll go get it out of the trunk of my car. Right. And so there's that pause. Do I really need to end this person's life? Because if I do, I need to go to the trunk, get it, and then come back and then end this person's life. Right. And I understand that, you know, sometimes you have to make split second decisions and in this country, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the point is not that Ramses has the solutions. The point is that that narrative, you know, that, that the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That narrative that, um, you know, we need more guns, not less. Remember there were a few years or a couple of years ago, they were talking about getting teachers guns in school in schools. And because that you know, was the problem. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then of course, because police have guns, the narrative that police need guns, right? So that they can save lives and they can, you know, stop the bad guys or whatever. I feel like police can do all those things without guns, you know, or the the vast majority of them. And, you know, we've gotten really comfortable in this country with the idea of qualified immunity, that there is just some collateral damage. Some people got to die in order for police to do their job. Some innocent people just got to die in order for police to do their job. And they're, oh, sorry. And they call this guy Hurley. They call him a hero for stepping in and stopping the gunman. And of course it was an accident. He didn't mean to die. And then guess what? Nothing changes. The same thing can happen tomorrow, right? Qualified immunity means that even though this was an accident, this officer will not be charged because he didn't know any better, right? And I'm not here to debate whether or not that's right or wrong. Um, I am here to say that we've been talking about these things. You know, police have, there's been a culture, certainly the culture that we've seen on the videos. You know, I'm not talking about your uncle who's an officer, your, your, whoever you are listening. I'm not talking about this person. I'm talking about a culture overall where police can hide behind the idea of fear many times, where ready, fire, aim is a, a justifiable course of action. Life is, is worth so little, especially black life. It's worth so little. And then there's no accountability behind it. And that's the part that hurts the most. You know, um, people talk about all kinds of, you know, what, what are black people doing about Chicago? you know, and the, and the murder rate there, what are black people doing about this and that and the other thing, you know? Well, yeah, you know, if something happens there, there's the possibility that you could potentially get justice for the wrongful death. If some person on the street goes and takes the life of your child, there's the potential for there to be justice there. If a police officer does it and they can, it doesn't have to, it can be on video. <laughs> the police officer does it because of qualified immunity because they had a gun at the ready, there's no justice in that. You just died, and that's the cost of doing business. And everyone seems to be okay with that. Go ahead, Jim. I want to be clear. In those cases, there's not the possibility of justice 
when the evidence of the wrongdoer is so clear, right? Because that sounds like kind of vague and kind of no. If the person that murdered the other person is on video and that video was legally obtained, which is another really, really weird part of American freedom. We can watch you murder somebody on video, but if the video wasn't attained right, you're still going home with no punishment. The criminal justice system and its flaws, that's one of the many. However, in most cases, especially if the gunman is black, and you talk about this black on black crime since we brought up Chicago, if the people know who committed the crime and it can be proven, that person's going to jail unless they're a police officer. And that's what Ramses is talking about. Yeah. So in it's the very face of obvious and compelling evidence, this person's going to prison unless they're a police officer. And it's that it's in that space that you find what your life is worth to the country. To, to, the, to, to the society in which you live, right? And that's where the affirmations, Black lives, and that's where those things come into play. It's not to say that we don't have our own problems, you know what I mean? I think that something like 80% of crimes done, or I, I won't even say the number, but the majority of crime committed to white folks is by white folks just like the majority of crime committed to black folks is by black folks because guess what that's who you live by right yeah but no one talks about white on white crime or tries to use it as a way to you know um change the subject on on white people you know because or hispanic people or anyone it's based on proximity not skin color like that's just the very obvious fact of it yeah and Um, and that story rams it's I hate to say it gets worse, but you're reading what the district attorney says here. Had he survived, we would have praised his bravery in engaging a mass shooter before anyone else was killed. He acted to defend others. We will remember him for his selflessness. This is the part that kind of shook me. Okay. The victim's mother Wow. She prayed that no one else would have to face the kind of situation her son did. In her words, as we pull ourselves together to move forward in life, consider using Johnny's commitment to doing the right thing, even at the greatest cost, to inspire your own actions. This mother has to speak in a forgiving tone, encouraging others to do the same thing her son did, even though it resulted in him being murdered by the very people he was trying to protect. Now, watch this. I'm not going to be foolish here. If there is a mass shooter, what is it that Ramses wants? It's a fair question. Ramses wants the police to show up with guns, and take out the mass shooter, right? It is urgent, it is happening right now. We need to do this before innocent, more innocent people lose their lives, right? Absolutely, I'm with you 100%. Is Ramses saying police shouldn't have guns? Yeah, I'll always say that. Ultimately, that's what we want, but 
in the immediate future, I realize that's not realistic because there's a lot of guns out here, right? So I get it. I understand. But I think that this story illuminates the problem, which is why we're talking about it. And I think it lets us further know that the problem isn't more guns. The problem isn't, well, I'm going to carry my gun with me everywhere and I'm going to make a difference if I run across a mass shooter or someone being taken advantage of or, you know, whatever the case is, because there is this psycho gun culture that exists, right? And Black people have certainly been on the receiving end of that with respect to police since the beginning of guns and police, you know? Um, and so anytime that I can challenge a narrative that people are trying to establish that is very pro-gun, you know, I do my best to say, mm, let's keep it all in perspective here, right? Because what, what does it mean to be a good guy with a gun who stops a bad guy with a gun if you get killed by the police? And then they just, that, that's again, just collateral damage, man, it's cost of doing business. And then because of qualified immunity, even if his mom wanted justice, like, yo, my, my son was helping out. There's no way she could sue. There's no way she could get compensation. There's no way that, you know, I'm not sure what happened here, but I don't know how she paid for the funeral for her child. You know, I don't know if he had kids. I don't know, you know, what what's next, right? And so there's a whole system that deserves criticism. It deserves it because that's how we make it as good as it can be. And those people that are holding on to the way it is right now are ignoring the realities, which is that it doesn't always work. And if you feel like this collateral damage is acceptable, then I need you to check your morality. Go ahead, Q. And Ramses, you're being generous because even a point that you've made on other shows, Ramses is saying it doesn't always work. A different and maybe even better way to say that is that it almost never works. None of these things that they're supposed to be preventing are ever prevented. It's always a response to something bad that has already happened. The strategies, the training, the whole infrastructure is not designed to prevent crime from happening, which is the craziest part. With the amount of money being spent, the entire infrastructure of what they're doing should be crime prevention, which not which would not require the guns and yeah. the militarization of our police forces. They just respond in the most to crimes that already happened. Right. And in this case, even when you tell them something's going to happen, they still wait for it to happen. If somebody calls and threatens to kill you and you call the police on them, the police can't do anything to that person until they've already tried to kill you. And I say try, hoping it wasn't successful. The brother of this man who went on this mass shooting, who killed a police officer, at least one, there was a note found in his home saying he intended to kill as many Arvada officers as he possibly could. Earlier that day, this gentleman's brother 
asked the police to check on him because he might do something crazy. I'm guessing they didn't because in their minds, well, the idea that he might do something crazy doesn't mean anything to us. He hasn't done anything yet, so it's all good. And that is part of the problem, folks. And, you know, there's been this push. You you know, we've been critical about the, the phrasing, but for better or worse, it has the alarming nature of it has gotten a lot of attention. But defund the police, which really means rethinking what policing means. And I think to your point, Q, um, you know, if someone threatens something and the police are powerless to do anything because they're just words, you know, and and I think it illustrates that the function of police is to respond to crimes that have already happened. And so the the case, the argument makes itself, the case makes itself because it's like, well, what can we do to prevent a crime from happening? Well, let's invest in programs that prevent crimes from happening. And then what's the next logical question? Well, where does the money come from to make that investment? Well, if we're preventing crimes from happening, then we have a budget to respond to crimes that have already happened. That budget seems like the most logical place to pull from to invest in these programs to prevent the necessity of that big budget. Hence, defund the police. The crime prevention budget should absolutely come from the crime response budget. Like, what are we even talking about? Hold on one second. Watch this. So for those that know, you know, I do a show. um, It's called... uh, if you wanted to look it up, the Black Information Network Daily Podcast, right? We call it Our Daily Story, but the Black Information Network Daily Podcast. Um, and it's a show that I do on behalf of iHeart Media. So you can look it up on their platforms. I did a, a recent episode where I talked to a man, Black man, civil rights activist. And He was a person that really believed that the police needed more money, not less, right? And on that show, I couldn't say too much of anything because it's not the nature of that show that, you know, I was interviewing him. The episode was about him. That was what it was. But everything that he said, as eloquent, as masterful a speaker as he was, everything that he said wouldn't hold a candle to what you just said because you're absolutely right. If we can invest in crime prevention and that, you know, and we can actually decrease the crime or prevent the crime from happening in the first place, then what's the necessity of this, <laughs> this budget to, you know, go to war against the people that we're supposed to, you know, be protecting? There's something else, too, I, I came across. This just reminds me, it's a little bit of a tangent, but, um, you know, if enough people are breaking a law, and it shouldn't be a law. You shouldn't arrest all the people and put them in jail to change the law. The law is wrong, not the people. The people are the people should dictate the laws, not the other way around. And again, a fundamental shift in how we're thinking about what is policing, um, what are laws, what should the laws be? You know, what I mean, obviously, we've seen marijuana laws change. Marijuana hasn't really hurt anybody unless it was illegal and people were able to monetize it and people fought over the, mon- the money. You know what I mean? Um, And then, of course, we have to rethink guns. And so um, 
this is the show where we have to talk about that. You know, obviously we implore you listeners to get active in your communities and take action, write your legislators and so forth. And we'll change the world together. Before we end, go ahead, Q. Before we move on, I just wanted to speak to a point that Ramses made earlier about my thoughts and my thoughts on guns and then and their place in society. I've been terrified of guns my whole life. If there was a national ban on guns and it needed votes, I'd be vote one and two. <laughs> I'd be early. I would camp out. You know, when the new iPhone comes out, I would camp out at the site. Like I'd be first and second. Sure. My becoming a gun owner was a response to very, very extreme and urgent circumstances. That's fair. At a time when the country was not just hyper-polarized against black and brown people in my home where everybody there is black and brown. And I mean black and Mexican specifically because our country was, our president had become president on the basis of keeping Mexican people out of our country. Build that wall was his actual quote unquote war cry. So when my daughter and my son and my fiance who are Mexican and black, my children being both and on top of there being this radical uh, polarization of our country, there being a pandemic where food and necessities for the home started to become in short supply. Being the person in our open carry state of Arizona that did not own a gun when almost everyone else does. And to be fair, Ramses has been to my home my home looks like the place where the people who have stuff live. It's a nice house. We, we might not have stuff, but the people that live in that house have stuff. It would have been irresponsible for me to not be a gun owner under those circumstances. I am not a person that celebrates or wants there to be guns ever. I'm scared that I have guns and I have kids. Right? I was just put in a position as the head of my household the provider and the protector of my family where I could not be the person in the event that nobody had anything. And it appeared that I did. It was the have versus the have nots. You guys were going to continue to be the have nots if it came at the cost of my family not having it. So it was not let me hit these streets with my guns. I've never left my house with my guns except for to go to the range so that I could be better prepared to use them if I ever had to. I don't carry a gun. I don't have a gun holster. There's no place in my car to put my gun. My guns remain locked safe in my home. So that everybody, if anyone ever came to my home looking to cause harm or to take from the people who I love and, I, and I'm and there to protect, then it wouldn't have been a good day for them. Outside of that, I hope to never ever use a gun ever and the day that our country says y'all can't have them trust me i am first to tell them y'all can come get them i'll bring them to y'all y'all let me know which one works better for you <laughs> well i'm thank you for saying that because you know it's important to be clear about where where you stand with that and you know um, obviously there's nothing wrong with that 
at all. So, way black history fact. We're a little bit late punching in here, but we'll knock this out. Uh, the Floating Freedom School was an educational facility for free and enslaved African-Americans on a steamboat on the Mississippi River. It was established in 1847 by the Baptist minister, John Barry Meacham. All right, the rest of this comes from Wikipedia. As a young man, he guided 75 enslaved people from Kentucky to their freedom in Indiana, a free state. Once established in Missouri, he and his wife, Mary Meacham, were conductors on the Underground Railroad. They also purchased enslaved people and took them into their home. The Meachams employed the enslaved people that they purchased and emancipated them when they had saved enough to repay their purchase price. In the meantime, they were also educated and learned skills to be self-sufficient once free. John and Mary also helped runaway enslaved people across the Mississippi and into the Illinois, into Illinois along the Underground Railroad. The Mary Meacham Freedom Crossing in St. Louis, the first site in Missouri to be accepted in the National Park Service's National Underground Railroad Network of Freedom was named after Mary. Um, Beginning in 1822, Meacham taught religious and secular classes for free. Uh, it was the first known school for blacks in Missouri called the Candle Talau School. It charged those who could pay $1 per pupil in tuition. Classes, classes were held secret, secretly in the basement of a church. In 1847, uh, he was forced to close the school. He had been uh, operating in the St. Louis church basement. Earlier that year, the Missouri legislature had passed a law that made it illegal to provide, quote, the instruction of Negroes or mulattoes in reading or writing, end quote. Meacham and one of his teachers were arrested by the sheriff and threatened. To circumvent the new state law in Missouri, Reverend Meacham bought a steamboat, which he anchored in the middle of the Mississippi River, thus placing it under the authority of the federal government. The new floating Freedom School was outfitted with desks, chairs, and a library. Students were ferried back and forth between St. Louis and the Freedom School in small skiffs. The school eventually attracted teachers from the East. Hundreds of Black children were educated at the Freedom School in the 1840s and 1850s. Those who could pay were charged $1 a month. One of the early students was James Milton Turner, who would go on to establish 30 new schools for African-Americans in Missouri after the Civil War. Another was John R. Anderson, who received much of his reading and religious training from the school. Um, Reverend Anderson later took over management of the school after Meacham's death in 1854. Um, and there's a lot more here, but because of time, I can't really go into it, but um, necessary to remind people that uh, and want us to read, want us to write, and want us to learn. And it was, a, it was a crime for us to read, right? And right. It was illegal. Yeah, isn't it crazy? It used to be the law. Yeah. Remember you talking about the laws? Yeah. The laws wrong. Changed. Sometimes the laws are wrong. Yeah, man. So, uh, yeah, just funny how, um, you know, something like this is a part of our history. And, you know, to, to you know, we mentioned critical race theory earlier in the show and, and on a lot of shows but it's funny how they can make an argument that says that white students would be ashamed of this how do you think it feels to be a black student but the difference is we know it's important to know this right it's, it's just kind of built into the culture like yeah well this is where we come from and you hold your head up you stay strong 
you get with it, you get out there, you get busy, you do what you got to do, you figure it out, you know, but this is where you come from. I wish that I had like a great story. To, yeah, my ancestors came over on some boat from Europe and, blah, you know, that sounds like a great story. Not We came over in slave chains and, well, you know, singing spirituals and we shall overcome, but I'm proud of it. I'm proud to teach it. I'm proud to know it. I had to learn to be proud of it, but it's hard for me to listen to someone else talk about how it makes them feel bad because how, anybody gets how, deserves to feel bad. How uncomfortable they are because right. of it. But, but that's going to do it for us today here on Civic Cipher. Um, so once again, I'm your host, Ramses Jock. Go by the name King Green. Website civicsector.com. Check out this and the previous episodes. Uh, be sure to make a donation. The show is growing with your help. And follow us on all social media at Civic Cypher. And until next week, y'all. Peace. They go, we handle it. These brothers are fabulous. Dilated, showing you where Ron travel is. World is between from sunlight to moon. Busting off stage like gunfights the moon. Pull my mic back. You like that? Journalists with journalists too. From headquarters, behind enemy lines, sidestepping the borders. With press passes, we bring it to you as it happens. The streets love my crew for music and rapping. Street commander slash beat expander. Here to fight the slander with the proper propaganda. What's happening? You got a question, then ask it. The news is just a TV show. Get past it. And this from a quiet wartime journalist headlines. Wake up, refuse, and resist. Like this, 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 like